every time we have an El Nino, a little bit of that heat comes back to the atmosphere and we roast. And people are going to die. And coasts are going to be inundated. And crops are going to be difficult. And climate refugees are inevitable. Hello, and welcome to We Persist a podcast that shares the stories of incredible people from all different backgrounds in the earth, ocean, and environmental sciences. Okay, so I had crossed paths with and had had the privilege of hearing Dr. Joellen Russell speak three times prior to sitting down with her at the 2019 American Geophysical Fall meeting in San Francisco in December. And let me tell you folks, for those of you who don't already know, she has a way of just completely captivating her audience with her excitement about the science she's doing. It's contagious. It's truly incredible, and so I'm super stoked to be sharing her story with you today. Today we are speaking with Dr. Joellen Russell, a professor of biogeochemical dynamics and the Thomas R. Brown Distinguished Chair of Integrative Science at the University of Arizona in the Department of Geosciences. So you broadly study the global ocean and mm -hmm. how it interacts with other things? Yes. Can you elaborate on your research in general and why it's well, important? Well, so I use uh, supercomputers, robot floats, and satellites. So I am an Earth system modeler and oceanographer. Um, when I was an undergrad at Harvard, I was in geochemistry and did wrote papers on things like, you know, how to use Archean paleosols to look at ancient earth oxygen, you know. And then I, in graduate school, I had always wanted to go to Scripps, and I did chemical and physical oceanography there. And when I got done, I went to the University of Washington, which has the best atmospheric dynamics department in the world, and uh, did, did actually climate and atmospheric dynamics, you know, trying to figure out what was going on in the Southern Ocean around Antarctica, and uh, then went on to the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory at NOAA and Princeton. So you've been all about the country. Yes, well, and, and <clears throat> skipping disciplines, geochem, oceanography, atmospheric, modeling. That's perfect. So do you, do you approach science then with this interdisciplinary? Well, I grew mindset? up uh, in uh, uh, Kotzebue, which is basically, uh, it's an Eskimo fishing village on the Chukchi Sea. And until I was 10, that's where I lived with my family. And I always wanted to know where the sea ice went when breakup came and off it went. And I could you can't follow it. It's incredibly dangerous, right? Uh, and I, I just was desperate to know what happened. So we can know what's on land. It felt like, you know, growing up in a community of indigenous peoples, the land is utterly known. It, th this colonial idea that we're discovering things, I'm like, really? Because <laughs> mm -hmm. pretty sure there's people here and they know all about it. They can tell you about the permafrost, and the berries and the caribou and everything. They can, they can, they can. And they can tell you a lot about the ocean. But it actually does get very scary further out from land. And that ocean is 72% of our Earth's surface. So for me, I always wanted to be an oceanographer. Always, 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 always. And so now I have swum in every ocean. And I know where the sea ice goes. That's wonderful. So 
I have read, perhaps on your Twitter, that you wrote scripts or bust. Can you, yeah. can, can you explain was, that and also your journey to when where I you was, are now? When I, was, when I was about 12, my great aunt Mary Ellen, remember this is pre-internet, right? You mm -hmm. couldn't just, you know, go Google it, you know, and figure out where's the great place to go be an oceanographer. My great aunt Mary Ellen was the first woman engineer at Boeing, and she told me that uh, the best place to study oceanography was Scripps Institution of Oceanography in La Jolla in San Diego. Diego. And I, uh, I, you know, adored my great aunt. And uh, she was a bush pilot. She was, you know, a geologist. She was, she was an extraordinary human being. And uh, I, I just, uh, so I wrote scripts or bust on my, on my kids back in the day. Uh, and, uh, and it happened. I, I cannot tell you how heartbroken I was when I found out later, because of course you couldn't just Google it, that uh, of course Scripps is a graduate program. You couldn't go to Scripps as an undergrad. So I went to my backup. I went to Harvard. Your backup being Harvard. <laughs> nice. It was my, definitely way down my second choice. I mean, really. Yeah. No, I, I tease a little bit, and yet it's utterly true. If they had been willing to take an 18-year-old, I would have been there. Yeah. So, so you went from Kotzebue... Actually, my father worked for the Indian Health Service, which is why we were. And uh, so I'm not native, but uh, being this little white girl running around in, uh, you know, in Kotzebue, and people were so kind, just amazing. And then we moved to, when I was 10, we moved to uh, the Rocky Boy Reservation in Montana, in northern, northern central Montana, where, uh, uh, with uh, Chippewa Cree. And uh, again, we, you know, they, they had no, no reason, in fact, many reasons not to be kind, not to be generous, and yet they were. And so my obsession with earth science and oceanography and climate is because I love them. And I want, I want to do whatever I can to sort of give back some tiny fraction of that grace that they had because things are changing so quickly and they are so tied to where they live. And and uh, and it's it's going like lightning. So but. no, <laughs> you don't have to apologize. How do you how do you see or see yourself helping in the end? Well, I can't do anything. You know, I'm not going to be able to slow everything by myself. But one, we discover, right? We figure out what's going on, how rapidly, and what the main pressure points are. And then that my one of the projects I'm working on is uh, I'd like to use a little of old-fashioned name and shame. I would like us to use Earth system models uh, assimilating carbon data from both the atmosphere and the ocean to actually infer the carbon fluxes from major land masses and countries. Basically, the top 10 global economies are huge contiguous areas on land, which is only 28% of the Earth's surface, right? So if I know the atmosphere really well, and NOAA does an amazing job at measuring the atmosphere, um, carbon dioxide, with a global array of monitoring stations, and we have these new global biogeochemical Argo floats that can go everywhere in the ocean, the law of the sea says if you drive it into somebody's exclusive economic zone, some other countries, you have to have a permit. But if it drifts in, it's legal. Can yes. You can you explain what an Argo so float is? So an Argo float is basically this long yellow tube with a ballasting system um, that basically sits, parks, you throw it in the ocean, it has microsensors on it, um, and a GPS and... Uh, 
uh, Iridium uh, communications array. And basically, it parks down at 1,000 meters, and then every 10 days, it drops down to 2,000 meters, makes a full profile of measurements of the surface, and beams those back immediately, about in eight minutes, by Iridium satellite, where we do an automated algorithmic quality control and then immediately put it on the web. So within two hours of popping its head up, all the data is public. And so what the Argo has been established since about 2004. Dean Remick has been the head of the Science Steering Committee for that uh, at Scripps. And uh, they have almost 4,000 floats out there right now. Yes, what my colleagues and I are working on is not just the physics, the temperature salinity, which is what Argo does, but the pH, watching the acidification in real time of the ocean, the oxygen, watching the deoxygenation in real time, the nutrients, the nitrate in particular, because we're watching nutrient trapping in the deeper ocean, which is starving the surface. Um, and, and, and we want this information everywhere in real time so that we can actually, one, help support our blue economy, two, actually tell what's happening in our ecosy ocean ecosystems and uh, biogeochemistry, three, actually monitor the ocean uptake of carbon. And that might not be the last. That, that probably might be first. Mm -hmm. And so uh, if we know the atmosphere and these BGC floats know the ocean, then when a big, you know, when, when China ramps up its um, coal-fired plants and it blows across and we measure it in the atmosphere and we say, hey, you're really emitting a lot more. And they say, no, 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 it was the ocean. We say, ah, 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 we're measuring. We know it wasn't the ocean. You know, here here is the monthly carbon uh, bill for all of the top 10 economies. And that way, when people cut emissions, like in the US, we're down 15% over the last 10 years. The EU is down about, I think, 12% there. And uh, China and India are up enormously. And we'd like to basically say Russia, Brazil, India, China, the US, Canada, the EU, we'd like to be able to say, you guys, you get three green leaves, you're amazing. And you guys over there, five black leaves, you're killing us, man. <laughs> and uh, so that's that's one of one of the things we're working on is we need this global float array. We need these incredible Earth system models. That's what I mean by supercomputers mm -hmm. is you know uh, doing the Earth system modeling. And we have an opportunity right now that is just extraordinary because the um, GFDL, where NOAA is basically their uh, climate modeling laboratory, where they dis um, have created, this is Manabi and Stauffer, I mean, they're a storied history of amazing creation of the fundamental uh, climate models that we use for climate. You know, like six or seven weeks ago, the Weather Service started using the atmospheric core from the climate model to do the forecast. So if you brought an umbrella today, you did it because a climate model told you to. Wow. I know, I know. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So, hello. It also means that it's designed to use ocean information, right? Couple model, climate model is an atmosphere and an ocean, right? Mm -hmm. It's just amazing. It's now all the ocean information. Plus, this one, you know, FV3 was originally part, it's been part of an Earth system model. So carbon, ocean biogeochemistry, atmospheric biogeochemistry, here we go. We can actually do this now. And they're working on weather timescales. So now we have the whole weather service and everybody looking and helping improve and make this model better. And I just, I'm, boom, it, it could be amazing. So I'm, yeah. I'm really, really excited about what comes next. We, everybody says, well, I don't know, you know, we already know that it's warming. I'm like, 
But do we know what's happening and can we predict it better? There's so much more predictability in the ocean, more like 45 days instead of, you know, seven to 10 days in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. How much better can we do with our predictions? We live in an age of wonders. And, That's great. And peril, but, but wonders too. Backing up a little bit, so you went from Kotzebue to Montana. Mm -hmm. Montana, did you see the rest of your education through? Or? I didn't actually. My tiny little town could not, did not have calculus in the high school. And remember, this is pre-internet again, so you couldn't just get an online class. Um, we also didn't have chemistry or physics. We had some bio, a little geo, but we didn't have the basics I needed. And I knew what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I begged my parents. Um, and if I got a scholarship, would they let me go to boarding school? And uh, I got into St. Paul's School on a scholarship, and which is a New England boarding school and uh, in uh, near Concord, New Hampshire. Okay. And uh, so as a sophomore in high school, I, I picked up my bags and my, my trunk, just like Harry Potter, and went off to boarding school. They, uh, I, it, it was an extraordinary, they had, they had an observatory. Like they had a telescope, like seriously. It, it's an amazing school. And uh, I took full advantage. <laughs> <laughs> they also had a, a relationship with School Year Abroad, which is runs a school for Americans, primarily from boarding schools, to go live a, abroad for a year and study, which in a way that gives you the physics and calculus without without interruption so you can take your exams and everything. So I, I got a, a scholarship to go to France for a year. And by the way, I still use my French. It was very useful. I highly recommend it. So I had a wonderful time. And then uh, where, I where went in France, uh, in Rennes, out in Brittany, which actually informs a lot of what I think about rain and food and fishing and wonderfulness because boy, it, it was delicious <laughs> and very, very wonderful people. So, and then I went to Harvard. Harvard. Okay, what was Harvard like? What did you do there? Ah, uh, so St. Paul's is small, like five hundred students, and it's in it's very rural, Turkey Pond, and running around the lake and, and rowing crew. It was quiet, and beautiful, and uh, not too scary for somebody who came from a small town and a small village before that. Right, all fine. Boston is not that. Boston is a big city, and they put me in Massachusetts Hall above the office of the president, which is one of the, it's the oldest building, I think, on, on campus, and uh, which is lovely, but it is haunted, no joke. And it's right on Massachusetts Ave, so the sirens, I would wake up, when I first moved there, I would wake up all night long, when, because I thought some, someone I knew, their house was burning down, or, or someone was having a heart attack. You know, there was something bad wrong going on because in a small town, full-on sirens and crazy just doesn't happen that often. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, startled awake often. And it was an adjustment. It really was. On the one hand, um, Harvard, uh, when I was there, they said things like, uh, Mother Harvard does not coddle her young. And if you felt it, you know, they just, you know, go on, get on with it, you know. On the other hand, uh, it was extraordinary because the resources are just immense. You know, there's, you, you want to do something, go ahead. There's somebody there that can help make that happen. You know, what research project would you like to try today? I got to do amazing things while I was there, and I, I enjoyed that. So do you feel like that, um, what did you say, Mother Harvard does not coddle her young? 
did do you feel like that made you become a more independent person more so than you already were or no I no? actually don't approve frankly okay. I think that's a horrible way to treat your students um, uh, I'm a professor now and a, yeah I call BS on that okay <laughs> I think it's neglect yeah um, I also uh, found uh, it not it was not easy when I was there it was 65 male 35 female among students and the last two female professors in earth and planetary sciences left while I was there. Now they have more, but when I was going, the last two years I was at Harvard, there were no female faculty in my department. How did that shape your experience? Uh, well, some of the faculty were extraordinary, and some of them were evil jerks and were not good to their students, and I uh, did not enjoy that. That was very hard. There were, I think it made for a much more sexist uh, workplace. I think it made for uh, difficulties being, there were only a few girls in my class doing earth and planetary sciences and then you're an all male faculty. I think that was not a healthy environment for anybody, let alone, you know, young women. So, uh, but on the other hand, uh, I learned a lot and uh, I got to scripts, you know, meaning in some sense, uh, if it doesn't, um, if, if they don't manage to stop you getting where you need to go, it, and I've had to tell myself that that's fine. Now, now that I am older and I have my own position, I would never do it that way. I wouldn't allow it to be done that way. And uh, I'm glad, I'm hoping that they have changed a lot. But back then, that was not fun. It was difficult. There were, like, my engineering professor who said, there are those of us who do statistics, and then there's my wife, my daughter, and my dog. And I was the only girl in the class. And I just felt like, and I didn't say it, because you didn't want to draw attention, but I, I just wanted to say woof. I mean, really? <laughs> but, you know, we, 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 it's, we, it makes you more determined to make it better, mm -hmm. more inclusive, because... In fact, I think we solve problems faster. We, and let's just say, with climate change, everybody needs to hear this message in their own voice, in a voice that's like theirs. Mm -hmm. So by excluding women or people of color uh, or women of color, you are excluding being able to communicate with communities that you need to come with us. Mm -hmm. You need their help. You need their cooperation. You need their enthusiasm. And you have no one to speak their language to them. And then you're wondering why you can't get everyone all together to move. Well, okay then. You know, right. So inclusivity is we need their ideas, their leadership, their contributions. We need them. And, mm -hmm. and all of this nonsense about not being more inclusive and diverse is just a, just a whole lot of really ancient twaddle. Yeah. Seriously, no more of that. No more of that. It's, it's time to do this all together now. All yes. together now. All together now. And we need everybody. We need every, the young ones go, well, I don't know if anybody needs my work. I'm like, are you kidding me? Of course we do. We don't know what amazing idea you're going to have or what, what extra elbow grease you're going to provide. The world is full of these amazing challenges that are really, you know, making it hard. Fix one. Fix a little bit of it. Come on, you can do it. And in climate change research, and not just the research, but the adaptation and the mitigation, the communication, we have so much work to do. Mm -hmm. Everybody in the boat. Everybody mm -hmm. in the boat. Every single one of them. Come on in, the water's fine. You know, we can do this. 
So you've outlined a systemic problem, I think, in the field. Do you have any ideas for how we can help make this a more welcoming environment for everybody of all identities? I think there are problems of access in individual communities. I think that each one of these actually has to be thoughtfully addressed, preferably from the uh, white male majority. Listening and working hard to help get everybody in the boat. Uh, it's not right to put all of the work onto uh, the minority that is trying their best and not being welcomed as they should. Also, we're, I, you know, just think about this in, you know, kind of crazy economic terms. Basically, all of these people, women of color, men of color, um, LGBTQ, and, and white women, too, who continue to not be represented in many of our sub-disciplines, essentially, we need them. They are all undervalued resources, assets. Essentially, if you want to get in on the ground floor, invest in somebody who is amazing but hasn't had the investment that would make their research flourish and bloom. The likelihood that we're missing an Apple or a Google or a whatever amongst our colleagues is 100%. We're mm -hmm. absolutely missing out on something extraordinary. So I don't have all the answers about how to serve each of these communities. I do know that it shouldn't be them trying to bootstrap their way in because that's a bunch of BS. Right. They have enough to do getting their own things off the ground. I would really like to see it be a uh, white male-led listening effort. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because there's a ton of emotional work that goes into this, and I'd like them to do a little of it. <laughs> here, and, here. The, you know, I have outstanding male colleagues who, who are, are listening and working and learning and, and pushing, and I'm proud of them, but I would like there to be more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to add about your journey? Well, I've had uh, some uh, amazing mentors, right? And not everybody says mentors like they gave you advice. No, no. There's like the Radcliffe Dean who wrote me a check from the Radcliffe uh, discretionary, Dean's discretionary fund so I could make my thin sections. Okay, there's uh, Lynn Talley, who was on my committee back when I was at Scripps and now is my dear colleague and co, co uh, she's the lead on the observations and I'm the lead on the modeling for SOCOM, our Southern Ocean Carbon and Climate Observations Modeling, where we're deploying all these biogeochemical Argo floats. And uh, I've had amazing help amazing help. And it's not, just, it's not just women either, although in times of deep dismay they were the ones who came through but also like when I was pregnant with my first child on the tenure track and unexpected and my the University of Arizona had no maternity leave zero and I was the breadwinner in my family I'm the lead and so we looked at it and we we're like what are we going to do how will we pay our rent <laughs> and my colleague George Garrels comes wandering down the hall and says hey Joellen I think I'm going to teach that big ocean class for you. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, yeah, I want to get my hand in. I'm going to teach it. You give me the slides. I'm like, George. And he did. 
it just, I didn't have to ask for teaching release. I didn't have to get it dinged on my, on my tenure track evaluation. George just took my load, just took it, just like that. What an immense, what an amazing human being. Never forget it, because I was in a panic about how we would do this. Ended up being a C-section. It would have been awful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, second, second kid, I had uh, my sister, who is a nurse, was in between gigs and said, you know what, I'm going to come down and live with you. And she did. For a year, she basically was the nanny. There's nothing like being able to hand your sister the baby with the dishes in the sink and the underwear on the floor and walk out the door to go to work. It was amazing. So... I, everybody should understand that I have an extraordinary pit crew, that my success is really a function of having an extraordinary number of people who, who, who were kind and generous with their time and their effort, uh, who loved me. And, you know, so when you're choosing your friends and your family and all the rest of it, your pit crew matters. It's, it, it essentially makes things possible. They invest in your future by investing in you. That's wonderful. Well, I'm very lucky. Very lucky. Yeah. Do you know, has there been progress on the paternity leave? Yes. Yes, we do now. Yes, of course we do. I have not for either of my children, which are now 9 and uh, 12, but uh, now everyone does. And in fact, one of our junior colleagues just took his paternity leave and all the rest of it. So I'm thrilled. Great. That's wonderful. There's still progress to be made there. In my department of 31 tenure track faculty, I'm the only mother. Oh, really? Mm. Do you want to talk about that at all? I'm not the only woman. We have uh, five or six female faculty, I think, but I'm, I'm the only mom. And I think that uh, that might just be everyone's choice. It might also be that we made it too hard, too difficult, not enough support, and basically they, they chose not to have children in order to be able to do their careers, and that is a grotesque choice that should not be forced on people. And if we're not doing it right, we need to do better. And it's obvious we're not doing enough. Yeah, so I'm is... pushing currently on the Academic Senate of the University of Arizona for on, on campus daycare. We don't have that, just by the way. Yep. This we is have something... progress to be made. We're a, yeah. we are a $2 billion a year business university. We have 43,000 students. We are the land grant you know, university in the great state of Arizona. And we need to do better. The lack of maternity, paternity, and childcare, that's something I've heard at at least three institutions. So it seems like it's a struggle that everyone is having to fight within each institution. Yep. And I, I just wonder if there is well, some... Well, it would be better if we did it federally. But again, right. we're, was, we're okay. ahead of where the, the federal government is. So yes, we're having to do it, a ground game. Every single institution, one after the other after the other. But I, we are winning. We are getting there. It is slower than we would like. But with all the young people coming up and just going, why? Why not? We're people. We're people. People have to have babies or there are no people. So, okay then, we should make some accommodations to be able to not lose the incredible investment we put into our faculty, our students, and our staff who, they're trained, they know us, they love us, they produce amazing things for us. How can we keep them uh, in uh, in the boat? What can we do to make it better? And I, uh, we're working on it. Absolutely. Every day. It's coming along. Hopefully that groundwork will set us up for 
some sort of federal thing at some yes, point. Yes, of course. Yeah. Of course. Definitely. It's, uh, why would you throw away the millions of dollars we've invested in every, you get a PhD in earth science at the moment where climate change matters the most, where we absolutely need every hand on deck and we can't afford to let any of them slip away, not one. Is there anything else you want to add about your journey? Just that uh, we live, you know, it's an ancient Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. I, I get to the privilege of working on the, the great challenge of our time. Uh, Walter Monk, um, who died this last spring, uh, uh, gave a keynote at the Ocean Sciences meeting some years ago. And he stood and he looked at the audience and he said, for my generation, our great challenge was stopping Hitler. Your great challenge will be climate change. And you must hold the line. Help is coming. It took us a long time to get into the war. But when we did, we won it. It's taking us a long time to grapple with climate change seriously. But when we do, we will, we will take care of it. You have to hold the line. Keep hope. Come on. And you could have heard a pin drop. The whole audience just, you know, it was an amazing moment. But I think about that, that we are in a moment of, of sort of Churchill, where we got to get the tanks built, the planes built, the boots on the ground. We've got to get ready. We can see that it's coming. And if you believe the projections, here it comes. And we must move. We must move briskly and with purpose. And uh, so I, I am excited to be here at this time doing this work. I'm also a little daunted. It's a lot. But to my senior colleagues, I say, I'm here. I'm the reinforcements. Me and all the ones my age, here we are. We're here. Mm -hmm. And to my juniors, I'm like, come on. We're going to need you, everybody in the trench. Let's go. Mm -hmm. we, we know it's coming. There's no doubt. So now it's just time to make sure we don't, we, we've marshaled our troops. When I talk about including everybody, it's because I know we need them. Mm -hmm. It's it, not just justice, not just equity, but, but, but we need them. This is not a question. It's a fact. Combine that with... Uh, the fact that we need better, better models, better observations, better plans, better communications. And I come here to AGU and I think, all right, when we call, you have to answer because we're all going to be on the line. Let's, you know, this, this, this is, it's coming. I, you know, the Great Barrier Reef, half of it bleached in two years, um, in 16 and 17, and uh, only about 15% recovered. And that was during an El Nino. I live in the great state of Arizona. I'm a public servant of the great state of Arizona. And uh, we are the, Tucson is the second, and Phoenix is the third fastest warming city in the country. Second and third. First is Anchorage. The <laughs> Alaska and Arizona are warming. And our 105 degree days, our 110 degree days are extending every year. And uh, this last year, we broke all our records in August, September, and October, and it was not an El Nino year where the ocean gives up a little extra heat. So I'm wondering what's going to happen during our next El Nino year. And if, it's, and if people don't start to panic at the next El Nino, then it'll be the one after that. And that means we're on a three to seven year clock. 
So what do you have to say to people or what do you suggest people say to people who don't see science as settled, who think it's that you can still have opinions about the science related to Well, I'm an oceanographer, right? And these robot floats are measuring all over the world ocean. And we now know that 92% of the anthropogenic warming happened in the ocean. And IRBI, the Earth's Radiation Budget Experiment, that looks out at the sun and in at the Earth, says that the, that the, um, the gap between what comes in, which is the same every year, roughly, and what goes out, which is less, that's that energy imbalance grows every year and the ocean warms every year because it's 92% of the ocean heat uptake. So I invite them to come look at our float data. I invite them to test us, poke at it, come investigate, find a hole, find a flaw. Because what I'm telling them is that 4,000 robot floats in the ocean are telling us the same thing. 92% of the heat, it did not leave the Earth system. And every time we have an El Nino, a little bit of that heat comes back to the atmosphere and we roast. And people are going to die. And coasts are gonna be inundated. And crops are gonna be difficult. And climate refugees are inevitable. Mm -hmm. So what we need to do now is bend that curve. Bend that curve, bend that CO2 curve as mm -hmm. soon as possible. And that's gonna take a massive combined coordinated effort. Right now, we're being led in the United States by the grassroots in Arizona. I mean, we actually, 42 states have actually reduced their emissions over the last 10 years. It's just a few stragglers that haven't gotten behind this. And uh, you see solar in my city popping up everywhere. We're shading our parking lots at our churches and our supermarkets with solar panels and even the, the, the school playgrounds. You know, we had to plant new kinds of grass because we, they now have shady varieties because we've got solar panels up there. And it's not just our solar, it's our water conservation, it's our, you know, we're moving, we're moving quickly. Um, and I, I'm so excited by that. I, I just see uh, what part, this is a, a, a time when sustainability and prosperity align. You know, you're saving money and you're investing in your kids and grandkids' futures. Mm -hmm. Yay! Yeah. You know, and, and the funny part is everybody's like, well, I don't think people really believe that. I'm like, have you seen how many people are investing with their cars, with their roofs, with their cisterns, with their zero escaping? They're investing insurance in the future. Companies insurance companies are insurance company. Exactly. Companies. That's right. Yeah. This is, they're already moving. It's just our political class at this point that haven't bothered to do their own research. Mm -hmm. They need to take a hard look at what would make their states more prosperous right now, because at this point, nobody expected solar and wind to get so cheap so fast. Mm -hmm. And since China says they won't have any combustion engines on the road in 2030, which is 10 years from now, mm -hmm. No combustion engines means all electric vehicles, all of them. So unless they'd like to, everyone to be driving cheap Chinese knockoffs, which is very likely, you know, given that they're going to be creating transportation for over a billion people, mm -hmm. uh, I, would get, I would get to hustling because we'd like to be ahead of the value chain in, in innovation that's happening rather than behind. Mm -hmm. Yes. What are your plans going forward in life? <laughs> so I have 20 more years to work, right? I'm in my 40s. So I have at least 20 years to go, maybe 25 if I'm lucky. Mm -hmm. And so I've got nothing but time. 
right? So I'm picking the biggest, hardest, craziest things I can get my hands on, and I'm going to keep pushing with, you know, like a rugby player in a scrum, push, push, push with the legs, you know, because, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to include as many young people uh, from as diverse backgrounds as I can, because I value their, uh, the, the, the innovative ways they think about everything and uh, that is different from my own. So I'm robot floats, supercomputers, and satellites. I want to build better models. I want to build better, cheaper, smaller satellites that we can put up many of rather than rather than having to depend on one enterprise satellite to do it all where failure means failure Mm -hmm. as opposed to you know which is the same with robot floats we love our ships they're very important i need more ship time but at the same time robot floats can go places when it's not convenient for us to go so miniaturization micro sensors better batteries i mean this is all part of that green push anyway to better electrical everything Mm -hmm. and and i'm going to also work in my state so globally to build these big infrastructure Um, i'm on a pi on a satellite project uh, proposal. I'm working on new or system modeling efforts as well as we just got renewed for SOCOM with our robot floats and uh, trying to design new data simulation for biogeochemical ocean data so that we can do ocean prediction right down to fisheries, etc. But at home, I'm going to, I'm, we're trying to build a tower network that would allow us to basically do weather and air quality and carbon modeling of our state. So we can see what our state impact is and we're teaming up with experts on mitigation and adaptation to see if there aren't things that we can do in Arizona to bend our curve that we can measure. So the combination of science and engineering and and social science to help push us forward and make us more prosperous at the same time. Who wouldn't want to come to a place with better air quality, bluer skies, great jobs and, and, and a beautiful landscape that we haven't ruined? I mean, Mm -hmm. really, this is what we offer. And so I'm doing it at my state. I'm doing it for my country. I'm trying to do it for the rest of the world. You know, everybody in the water, time to time to go. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Nothing but time. You know, I, unlike, unlike a lot of our politicians, I have tenure. (laughs) 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 They should think carefully. (laughs) Act wisely. Get on the right side of this. Come on, get on the right side of this. Be on the right. Do you really want to be one of the people we we see as appeasers you know if you take that world war ii analogy and you say who was it who was telling us not to get into the war do we respect those people does history treat them well how about the people who said oh well we'll, we can get along with it but we'll make a deal or it's not so bad you know co2 can help fertilize plants those people are not going to fare well, and it's happening right now. I suggest they all get on the right side of history right now. If people want to find you, you use Twitter occasionally? I do. At? Deep Blue Sea Next. Well, thank you so much thank for chatting. Thank you for having me. This was wonderful. Wow. So it was so, so cool to hear not only about the journey along which Joellen has gotten to where she is now as a professor of biogeochemical dynamics at the University of Arizona, why she thinks the world of science needs inclusivity, and a little bit about a whole lot of science of which she's a part. Check out our website at letsdosomethingbig.weebly.com or connect with us on Instagram at LDSBIG. Have a fantabulous day.
content was produced and edited by Mariama Dryak. The cover art for the We Persist podcast is created by Emma Henry, and the music for today's episode is from Purple Planet Music.